the reason we're preach I'm preaching through First Timothy is because, as I've said a number of times already, it's because our church has been planted. We're a three-year-old church now. We do continue to grow, but growth does not mean being established. What we need to become is an established church, not just a growing church. And so becoming established means bringing our church to a firm and stable basis. So the question on my mind today is what structures should a growing church put in place? What systems should we adopt as we move forward? What programs should we enroll or should we roll out as we move forward as a congregation? I believe the passage today in 1 Timothy 5 is going to point us in the right direction and give us a firm answer to those questions. So read with me 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 1 through 16. Paul tells Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a woman has children or grandchildren, let them first show to learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up her children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Amen. So in this passage, Paul is giving Timothy personal advice on the manner of his leadership in the church of Ephesus. 
how should he lead the congregation? Now, Paul just said in verse 11, command and teach these things. So how, how, how is Timothy, what is the manner in which he should lead this congregation? Secondly, what is he to do with widows in the congregation, which is a special issue in the New Testament we see? The answer to those questions are, number one, he should lead as one who is leading a family. And number two, with regards to widows, the church should fill in the gap left over when the husband dies. So I think, looking at this passage, praying over it this week, preparing this sermon, and just out of Christian conviction and biblical conviction, I believe that we will become a healthy church not by setting up many structures, not by establishing many programs, ultimately, or not by rolling out numerous systems. The church must not operate as an organization. I truly believe the church must not operate as an organization, but as a family who actually manifests God's care for one another. Because when you are a Christian, you are brought into a family. And that family, especially the family of God, should manifest God's care for one another. And especially, even furthermore, for those who are vulnerable and cannot care for themselves. So, looking at the first two verses, it, it seems obvious to me that the church should reflect what God has made the church to be. And I think that's the point here with Paul's instructions to Timothy. How should Timothy lead the congregation? How should, should he command and teach these things? Well, he should do one as leading a family. So he would, don't rebuke an older man. When you command, don't do so in a rebuking way. Rather, encourage him as you would a father. And treat him as you would a father. Women, as if you're giving honor to her like a mother. Men, treat one another with a camaraderie as if you are brothers. And women, treat women with all purity and chastity, honoring them. So that is how Timothy's should go about leading this congregation. Timothy is to lead and teach not as one who is leading a business, not in a calculated, methodical fashion, carrying out the rules and the structures that have been set up. Rather, he is the one who is supposed to be leading a family, the family of God, as they colonize a certain area in Ephesus. That doesn't mean sloppy. That doesn't mean carefree. That doesn't mean without diligence or discipline. But it does mean as one who is leading a family, not a business. So, I believe that family in the New Testament, it's not a sentimental ideal. It's not like, yeah, you know, we're, we're 
we're part of one another. This is not some vague abstract ideal, but to treat one another is, as a family is rooted in the spiritual reality that God has placed us in the same spiritual realm with one another. That we have the same father in virtue of the gospel. That Christ is our elder brother and that we are indwelt with the same spirit. So you have God's DNA in you. All of us who are Christians, that's what makes us a family. Not some sentimental ideal about how people should treat one another. It's actually rooted in the spiritual reality that we've been made part of the family of God. Hebrews 2.11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Christ is not ashamed to call them brothers. I love that passage. So we all have one Father, and Christ is our brother. That's why we should treat one another as family. Because in reality, in spiritual reality, we are family indeed. We all have the same father. We all have the same savior. We all have the same elder brother, Jesus Christ. And we are indwelt by the same spirit. That's what makes us family. And that's how the church should operate. Not like a business. So to continue to become an established church, a church brought to a firm and stable basis, we need word, the word of God preached, doctrine, holiness of life, prayer, the ordinances, discipleship, and we have all those things and we're, we will continue in those things. But how we should relate to one another we should relate to one another and embrace one another as the true family of God. That is how this church will truly be established. So I, I think the greeting time after worship, that's, kind of, that's part of our liturgy. Even though we don't have a... a a high liturgy at this church that is part of our liturgy and it's done intentionally so that there is an atmosphere here where we can forge fellowship together I know you've heard me say this before that uh, fellowship in this case family ship is not just found you don't just fall in to fellowship well this you know I've, I've found fellowship I mean well, the Lord, the Lord may do something like that, but by and large, what you, you're called to do is forge that fellowship. Forge it. Intentionally. So I see that greeting time is a beautiful time. It's part of our fellowship. So if there are people here that don't know one another well, I encourage you not to just talk with the same people every week, but to go and to forge fellowship with one another. For Timothy, Paul is saying, lead as one, not leading an organization, not leading a business, not setting up structures and programs. Not that there's anything wrong with policy. This is how we do things. This is, uh, by matter of prudence, these are the guidelines that we have. But that's not what drives a congregation. What drives a congregation is 
the spiritual reality that unites us. So, embrace one another as a family and we will do well. Theologically speaking now, Paul goes into widows and I want to, verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Now this might seem like it's arm's distance away from our day and age. I mean, many people don't even know a widow. But why does widowhood seem to be such an issue in the New Testament? Well, because if a woman, a woman's husband died in the first century, there was no 401k, there was no pension, there was no life insurance, there was no social security. That left widows very vulnerable especially if they didn't have a, a massive savings account. It left them very vulnerable um, and actually in a position where they needed to sell their possessions to live. And when they ran out of that, they were, out, they were sort of out of luck in the first century and became beggars. And that's why the woman who put in the widow, who put in the might, put in a great amount of money for her because she had nothing to live on. It's not just that she was poor, but she was trusting God day to day to even have a penny, a loaf of bread. So in the first century, to be poor, unlike today, mind you, to be poor in the first century was largely because your circumstances of life put you in a difficult position. It wasn't because all the time because you were lazy or out of neglect or you just constantly make poor decisions which is why some people have become poor but there were many poor people in the first century because there was not, weren't those systems in place so in the first century the church had the ministry of supporting widows turn with me if you would to Acts Chapter 6, verse 1. Why did they need proto-deacons in the church at Jerusalem? Why would they need that? Well, it began, the need arose from a need to serve widows. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there were Greek widows and there were Jewish widows and it seemed like there was, there was an impropriety in how the money was being handled or there was confusion. We don't really know exactly, but the, these proto-deacons, these men, the seven that were chosen, were chosen there to ensure that the widows in the church were being cared for properly. So di the di diaconate started with the need for caring for widows. Now, the re now here's the next question. The reason, what's the reason that the church would support widows? I mean, granted... 
We've already established that they were in need because their husband has passed away. But is there a, a deeper structure? Is there a, a, is there a substructure to why the early church would take care of the widow specifically? I believe there is. I believe the early church was not just taking care of widows because this is a nice thing to do. The early church was taking widows because it reflected who God is. The church was reflecting God's own care for the widow. Widows are all over scripture. And just to give you a few, just a taste, just a few passages from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10.18. We see that Yahweh is a father of the fatherless and the defender of the widows. In Exodus 22, 22, the law says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry. Isaiah 1.17 Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So the church's care for widows was not some arbitrary good deed. It was a reflection of God's own nature and his care for the widow and the fatherless. P please understand, and this is what separates us from the world, secular ethics is rooted in what everyone's thinking at the time. Slave, is slavery good at this time in the 1840s? Well, sla you know, that's a good thing. Is abortion good now? I think it's going to be looked at as a byword in 50 years or 100 years by God's grace. Well, then, you know, ab abortion is a good thing. Secular ethics is always rooted in what the mass of society is thinking is good at a current time. But Christian ethics is rooted in the nature of God and always has been. So even if the church has made mistakes at times, it doesn't, it's not making mistakes because God has made mistakes. It's been making mistakes because it has failed to approximate itself to the nature and the character of God. Why should you be holy? Why should you be holy? Give me one good reason. Because, well, <laughs> praise God. But even deeper than that, why does he command it? Because he is holy. Right? Yes. You shall be holy, for I am holy. So we read James one twenty-seven. Since God has care for the widow... Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that is true care. In other words, manifesting God's nature and his care. That's true religion and undefiled before God. Now, you know what's funny? I was thinking about that very passage, saying, well, I don't, you I mean, honestly, I, I've never visited a widow in their affliction. I mean, I have made, 
I've gone to hospitals before. I've, I've encouraged people, but widows and their affliction. What? I'm trying to apply that to my life. And uh, so with that in the background, knowing that I'm going to preach this passage and not want to be a hypocrite, um, I'm thinking about that. And so, you know, how can I greet the widow? And so, as you all know, yesterday was the first day of rifle season. <laughs> and so Wesley and I woke up, we went out, and we didn't see a thing. And it was cold out there, but... So we went out there, and so anyhow, I planned to go home for a few hours. Then about 2, 3 o'clock, we go back out, sit till dark. I knew the spot we were going, sit till dark. And so I had these, all these plans to sit till dark. And then my grandmother called. And she is a widow. And she wanted us to come over and spend some time with her. Now you, I mean, my first thought is, what, this is the first day of hunting season. What, are you kidding me? <laughs> but I, this passage, this very passage, rung in my mind, pure religion that is undefiled before God is this, to visit the orphans and the widows and their affliction. And so, I could not have preached before you this passage today if I didn't go visit my grandmother. So we did go out about 2 o'clock and played around in the woods for a couple hours, but then before it got dark, we all, meet, we all met at uh, my grandmother's house. And so I did not sit till dark. But at least I think God was, was giving me an opportunity to put this into practice. So there's, there's something to think about. Who's the widow who is the orphan in your life? God will give you opportunities to sacrifice, even if it's something as important as the first day of rifle season. So, directives, going back to the main point here, directives for the Christian is rooted in the nature of God. So our ethics, when we talk about ethics, we have a basis for ethics. We have a grounding for ethics. And that grounding is who God is and what God is like. I love the lovely phrase by Dallas Willard, who says that the purpose of sanctification is to bring oneself into cooperation with the divine order. Mm. That is exactly what it is. It is to be brought into cooperation with the divine order. To be reconciled to him, rightly related to him, and through his spirit we can keep in step with him. And through union with Christ we have died to ourselves and we live to God. So... That's the, question, that's the answer to why, why all this care for the widow. Well, it's because God cares for the widow. Now we see some specific instructions for how widows should, uh, should be cared for. And there are two kinds of widows in this passage. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. And continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So the first kind of widow in this passage is the kind of widow that the church should be supporting. She is a truly godly woman who is left without help. 
A good example of this is in Luke, where we see a prophetess named Anna. Luke 2, 36-38, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's a good example of what Paul's talking about. Someone that did not depart from the temple, but continued in worshiping, fasting, and prayer night and day. Now, a widow can do that. Maybe she doesn't have great strength, physical strength, but there are widows who are stronger, perhaps, than I will ever be. I remember we had, at Bread of Life, there was a woman named Elvira, and she was very, very slight woman, small, but she, she, she was very respected and known to be, and even if you had a conversation with her, as a very spiritually strong woman. I remember one day she was standing up in front near the pulpit giving an announcement. And I, it was like I was having visions. This has never happened to me before. But I saw wings on her for a split second. It was like I could see holiness radiating from this weak widow. Because she continued in prayer and fast. She was the kind of person that did that. Prayer and fasting night and day. But there's another kind of widow. There's the kind of widow in verse 6 who is self-indulgent, and she is dead even while she lives. Self-indulgent could imply sexual deviancy and dead while she lives. That's a spiritual state. So the church is to support not just any widow, but a widow who is part of God's family and who has devoted herself to the service of the Lord. So, there's widows we should care for, and there are widows who should not be cared for. So, we have to be wise and discerning. Paul is going to explain further as this passage goes on. But another point I'd like to make about how we should care for widows is that if the woman has been widowed, the responsibility lies first with the family not with the church. First with the family, then with the church. Now, why is Paul... So in verse 4, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents. So honoring your parents involves supporting them when they are in need. Not just in word, but deed own, but deed as well. In verse 8, Paul gives a very strong warning about this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that is strong language from the Apostle Paul. Why would this be? Why does Paul give such a stern threat to those who 
are not caring for their parents. If you turn with me to Matthew 15, I think we get a hint at what is going on in the first century. While the early church is taking care of widows and those who are in need, it stands in direct contrast to the way the Jewish leaders of the day were manifesting so-called godliness. So, in Matthew 15, 1-6, we see a discussion. Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus, starting verse 1, from Jerusalem, and said, why, does, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? Very interesting. Not the scriptures, but the traditions of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. The words have been given to God when Paul said, when Jesus says, but you say, um, in verse 5, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, reflects a Jewish tradition called Corban which means offering. By declaring your property to be Corban, as a first century Pharisee or scribe, you were required to give your property to the temple when you died. That means it's given to God. It's an offering, a gift given to God. So it's almost like an organ donor. When I die, you can take my organs. It's the same thing that the fair that the Pharisees were doing when I die you can take all my money and possessions and it can go towards the temple um, or it's like writing a will here's what's going to happen with all my possessions when I die now if a man's wealth was Corbin if they declared their property to be Corbin dedicated to the temple that means it was forbidden to be given to anybody else including family and parents so what you you could use it while you lived but it's just the promise that this is this is secured for the temple therefore it cannot go to anyone else so by declaring their possessions and their property to be corbin it gave them an opportunity to shirk their responsibility to their parents rather than taking care of elderly parents, they intentionally made a pledge to dedicate their money and their possessions to the temple when they died, and therefore they were released from the responsibility of having to provide for their family. And it even looked like godliness in the eyes of the Jews, because in fact they were giving their, they were so godly that they were making their parents live in poverty 
because they were giving to the temple. That's Corban. And Jesus condemned this, as you see, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So that's the cultural atmosphere that Jesus was dealing with and perhaps was in the air in Ephesus as well. So the church, unlike the Pharisees of Jesus' day, are called to truly reflect the heart of God. Not just some pompous or pious respect where you provide lip service, but actually support your parents. Because that's actually what the commandment always said, honor your father and your mother. Interestingly, that word honor, if I have my Greek right, right the honor in verse 3 is the same word, the Greek word, that the Septuagint uses to translate the commandment, honor your father and mother. So Paul may have this very thing in mind as well. So, support a widow who is truly godly. Don't support opportunists, the Apostle Paul is saying, someone who is trying to get on to the church's roles to order, in order to live some kind of loose life. No, support widows who are truly widows, and Paul gives those guidelines for enrolling widows to be cared for. In verse 6, we see Paul giving something of a policy or guidelines for Timothy on how to care for widows. He writes, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Now that word enrolled means literally put on a list. So, it seems that the church had a, an actual list of widows that it was supporting. A formal list of true, godly women that the church was supporting. What kind of woman was it? Well, verse 9, If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up her children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. That's the kind of widow that the church would support. So a 60-year-old widow, by and large, beyond marrying age, a husband of one wife, meaning she has been faithful to her husband, she's been exemplary, a she has a reputation for good works, she's been a faithful mother, and she's even been a good neighbor. She's shown hospitality and cared for the afflicted. So this, in this passage, please understand, this is not a woman who has neglected her duties. It's not as if she's in need out of neglect. She's in need because her husband died, and she cannot support herself being an old woman. She is not in need because of sloth, or poor choices, but because her husband has died. By the way, women, note the values that Scripture elevates 
for women in this passage. Faithful to your husband, having a reputation for good works in the, whatever way God has gifted you or whatever you can sacrifice for the Lord. To bring up your children well, to be a, a good, faithful mother, to show hospitality, to care for the saints, that is a good woman. And I think we have good women in this church. Look at this passage, not to, but Nydia is an example of what I'm talking about, except for being 60 years of age. Now, there's a problem, though. There has been a pattern of younger widows being enrolled into churches to care for, to, that churches might care for them, and put on an official list. But there are two problems Paul has seen, or patterns that Paul has seen. In verse 11, he says, refuse to you, refuse, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. It seems that Paul is noticing a pattern in the church where younger widows um, have lost their husband, but when they find another man, they will look for they seem to look for another man from any religion and depart from Christ. And so the church has supporting has been supporting these widows who abandon the church once they find someone else to cover for themselves. Secondly, Paul mentions idleness. Besides that, verse 13, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. So there seems to be this pattern of young widows getting enrolled, the church fully supporting them, and they either leave the faith once they find a husband, or they are not the kind of women that you should enroll in the first place. They fail to have the character of a godly woman. So, the church is not there to incentivize uh, laziness or neglect of your duties, the Apostle Paul is saying. And some of the younger women, in Paul's understanding and what he has seen, have been opportunists rather than godly women. Now, if someone, if someone died in a church and left a widow, I don't care how old she is, we, the church would come alongside them and support that woman. The difference being here is we, we will care for women at any age, but the matter being discussed here is being enrolled on a perpetual list of support. So that's the distinction. If, if one of men, if one of us die, the church should come along. If I die, the church should come along and you should fully support Nydia and my children until they're in a good place. 
That's what, that's what we're talking about here. But Nidia is not 60. So I don't think she should be enrolled on an official list of perpetual financial giving. Establish her and set her in a good place and be there for her throughout her life. But what Paul is talking about is a list, an official list. And Paul is giving some guidelines. Do it, don't burden the church by supporting every single widow that comes along. There needs to be some prudence and wisdom on how you go about this. So, what does Paul suggest for younger widows that are capable, that have been widowed? So, I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Because some of these younger widows have already strayed after Satan. And the whole idea here is what I just said. The point of Paul's instruction is so that the church would not be burdened by opportunists, by women who really don't hold to Christ, who don't manifest the character of Christ. This is not, the church is not a handout program or a welfare system. The church is there to support the brethren and the sisters. Paul says clearly, and I believe it's Galatians, I don't know if I have this written down. Yes, Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So do good to everyone. If there's a widow who's a non-Christian, let's come alongside them. Let's do good to them. But especially those who are of the household of faith. So there's a priority there's the women, the widows of the church, and then there's the women's at, women outside of the church. And family should take care of family first before they take care of the world. Ray Ortland has a good little book called Let the Church Be the Church. Three priorities. Christ, the body of Christ, and the world in that order. Christ, the body of Christ, and the world in that order. So Paul, by giving these guidelines, is telling Timothy to exercise prudence and sanctified wisdom on how you handle the Lord's money. It is not just be some, something that we should throw around at everyone who asks, but we should be wise and faithful with the Lord's money. So, I believe we shall become an established church and a healthy church not by following the path of program, because I don't see program in, in here, but I do see the path of family, so that even if one of our men die, the widow is taken care for like she were a mother to us. I remember Paul Washer, and I looked this up, and I did find the text, but Paul Washer was talking to missionaries. And missionaries risk their life, as you know, especially in the Middle East. And he was talking to some of these missionaries, and he said something that always struck me. He says, missionaries, some of you, friends of mine, on the day, you, on the day that you are slaughtered in the foreign field and your blood comes out, 
I want you to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe it. With all that is in me, I promise that we will take care of your wife and your children. Don't worry about them. Bleed the gospel. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if the church were a church where if a man were dying, he did not have to worry about what his wife and children, their state, after he was gone. Well, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if he could die in peace knowing that they would be well taken care of by the brothers and sisters in that congregation and they would treat her like a mother and like a sister. We should say our, with relation to one another, you're my people. This is a, we are, these are my people. That's how I relate to you. And it should be how we relate to one another. We are all God's children. And so I believe the path to health in this church is not ultimately through organization structures and programs, but it's by forging a family atmosphere and relationship that corresponds to this true reality that God has made of us to be. Amen? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father.